Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Jill Winebanks, Kimberly Action Store, and me, Joyce Vance. With the new year kicking off, there is no better time to get your hashtag sisters-in-law merch. We have hoodies. They're perfect for cold weather, t-shirts for the gym or warmer climbs, and our new mug. You definitely want to get one of those. Click the link in our show notes or go to politicon.com slash merch today. Now on to the show, we have a lot to discuss. First off, the most recent developments in Trump-related litigation. We'll also be discussing a pair of Texas cases, the Biden administration's lawsuit against Texas over immigration enforcement and the Fifth Circuit ruling that lets Texas ban abortions, even when necessary to stabilize a patient in an emergency room. So look, it's a heavy, full load of issues to discuss. We also have the January 6th anniversary, not really a peak moment in American history. It's serious times. It's going to be a serious year. So I need my sister's advice. What are you doing this year as the new year rolls around for a reset or to make sure you take care of yourself as we approach uh, some pretty heavy stuff. Kim? Yeah, well, maybe I can lighten the uh, mood by talking about mine, which is rather frivolous, but um, I hope you'll indulge me. Along with the normal, you know, I I don't do resolutions, but I take the new year as a time to, you know, check that I'm doing things that I ought to do. So eating right, you know, getting exercise, all that good stuff. Well, I noticed yesterday when I was out running errands after an event and I had on high heels And I've been wearing high heels like my whole life. They've always been comfortable to me. But I worry that after the pandemic, I don't wear them as much because as I walked maybe a total of about two miles through downtown DC, my my feet were fine, but like my like my um, calves were weird and my shin was like the muscles, not the joints. And I said to myself, oh my God, are my high heel muscles atrophying? <laughs> like that would be a travesty. So in 2024, I'm wearing high heels right now. I've been wearing them all day. I'm going to strengthen my high heel oh, wearing muscles it. by using so, them. Know, I was going to say, well, you're the youngest <laughs> of the sisters. I was going to say, welcome to yes. wisdom, which means, you know, you don't wear high heels anymore because they're painful, but you're, you're oh, no. going, you're doubling oh, no. down. You're going to work out the muscles. I will not be beaten. (laughs) I am going to have the strongest high heel wearing muscles in America by the end of this year. And that is one thing that I vow to do. What about you guys? I mean, but Kim, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about five-inch Louboutins, something else? I need to know what kind of high heels, sis. So yesterday I was wearing a Ferragamo boot. I would say it was about a four and a half inch heel, but it was a very steep one. Um, I love those boots. I got a lot of compliments while I was walking down the street. I didn't want to admit to anybody that I was uncomfortable. <laughs> I love it. Barb, what about you? I've resolved to wear only comfortable shoes in the new year. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, one of the things I mentioned this, uh, I think last time that I want to really want to do is try to um, improve my connections with people or just have more of them. You know, doing things in real life with people I care about And one of the things I'm going to do this weekend is I am taking my son, a Michigan graduate, to Houston for the national championship football game on on Monday, which is a little bit of a cheat because I really want to go myself. So uh, I I tell myself, (laughs) well, I'm taking my son. We'll have this wonderful trip together. And we will. So I can't wait. I'm really excited about that. But I'm just trying to, um, you know, spend more time present, more time away from my device and, and more time connecting with, you know, the people who matter to me in my life this year. Well, Barb, we have a little trip planned, don't we, in March to kick off your book tour when all of your um, very supportive former U.S. attorney sisters are going to get together to watch you talk about your book in Seattle. And I can't wait for that. Yeah, and I'm so so honored. We we, uh, Seattle and and, uh, San Francisco as well. And Joyce, you're right at the front there leading the charge. So thank you for the support you're showing. A lot of love from our former U.S. attorney colleagues. Thank you all. 
Well, we all get to get in on the act a little bit because Jill and I will also be celebrating your book in D.C. and Chicago, respectively. So we'll all have our get our shot to give you a little uh, book Thank love. You. I'm honored. Jill, how are you going to celebrate the year of Barb? Surely not <laughs> by wearing high heels. <laughs> we'll wear low heels I mean, together, Jill. Yes, I, I, I may be a little higher than your gym shoes, but I'm definitely more close to you, Barb, for sure. Um, no, but I did think seriously about doing something. And I asked my husband as a present to get me some facials and some training sessions. So I'm going to have a facial next week. And I'm going to promise to have more of those. Just, it feels so relaxing and good. And so I'm really looking forward to to doing that. And I don't make resolutions except as we talked about last week, um, or maybe it was actually on iGen Politics I talked about. I read um, Jennifer Rubin's column and I resolved that I was going to continue to fight for democracy in America and that I would not give up this year. So I did sort of make a resolution, but I'm countering that intensity with having facials. Wait, wait, I have a question. You also mentioned training sessions. Is the training session how to get a facial? <laughs> the training is I'm actually working with a workout oh, person to nice. make myself healthier and stronger and to make sure that, because in my case, it would be the joints, not just my legs. <laughs> and I used to take toe lessons. I was a ballet dancer and I, I did. Wait a minute. Point. <laughs> Wait, is this yeah. a new job for you? Here's Jill? another one. <laughs> another one. You, yep. Yep. You were a ballet dancer. Yeah. Well, and for my 40th birthday, I went back on point. That is really stupid. Oh, Let me tell you. It's one thing God. when you're 13. It's another when you're 40. Oh my gosh. But yeah. That was, yeah. Yeah. It and was ballerina. really fun. I got all the, the associates at Jenner and Block. I got to form a class at Hubbard Street Dance and they gave us lessons. And that was part of my progress was going from ballet slippers back to toe. So yeah, I'm, I'm not doing that again though. That's for sure. Well, you guys are all very inspirational. I have this sort of modest hope. Um, I've been building up frequent flyer miles for like two decades and I've never used them. I just don't oh my use gosh. them. And I transferred some miles to my daughter. She and her boyfriend are coming to visit us in February. And I thought, you know, look at this. We could go to like London and, and Paris. And so I have enlisted my husband and we're going to try to do some long weekend trips to places we haven't been since before the pandemic. Um, and, and just try to remember that there's a big, wide, interesting world out there. And, and that like you say, Jill, democracy is worth fighting for. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Well, on Friday, the U.S. Supreme Court granted Donald Trump's petition to review the decision by the Colorado Supreme Court that he's barred from the ballot there under the 14th Amendment, which, of course, disqualifies from office officers of the United States who engage in insurrection after taking an oath to support the Constitution. And they set a very accelerated timeline with oral arguments set for February 8th. So let's uh, let's talk about this first. Um, Kim, first of all, what is this petition he files? Uh, he seeks a, a, a grant of certiorari. Can you please explain to our listeners what is certiorari besides a very difficult to pronounce Latin word? You know, I said the word certiorari on uh, TV, on MSNBC, and the host, like, you know, looks like she died what? inside a little. Um, it, <laughs> and, and people also say it, I say it differently than my husband, which I he think he says certiorari or I, I don't know what he says, but it's different than what I say. That's why we also cert. 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 Is cert <laughs> is basically a petition asking the Supreme Court to take up a case. And if the Supreme Court agrees to do so, uh, it is an order. It is called an order of certiorari. So that's basically it just means uh, that Donald Trump asked the Supreme Court to decide this issue. 
Yeah. And of course, they don't have to. They, uh, they, they're very selective about what they take. It has to be a very significant matter, which, you know, Trump argues that it is. I agree it is. And, and I wanted to talk about some of the arguments that, that Trump makes in this um, petition. Um, the first words in the petition are that the people should elect the president. You know, what, what do you make of this idea? We've been hearing it kick around. The idea that it's undemocratic somehow to exclude Donald Trump from the ballot under the 14th Amendment. What's your take on that? Yeah, so the legal answer is that the Constitution includes a number of disqualifying uh, disqualifiers for holding federal office. Those are not anti-democratic. What they are meant to do is to protect the democracy from people who are, say, not loyal to the United States, who have previously attacked or supported an attack on the United States or its government. Um, You know, think about former Confederates who may have wanted to run for office and really disrupt things during and after Reconstruction. You can't have that. That That would threaten democracy. So it's actually very pro-democratic to have certain disqualifiers to protect those offices. So that's not it. But I think it's important and it shouldn't be dismissed that this argument that Trump is making is more of a political one than a legal one because the legal yeah. one doesn't hold up water, that you, they want to do this because they don't want you to vote. You know, the my enemies are coming after me because they don't want you to vote. They don't trust you to vote and they're taking your right to vote away. That is incorrect, but it it is a pretty powerful emotional appeal on the political scale, which I think, and it can confuse people, like not people who may not even support Trump. Yeah. And so I think that's why it's important to do what we what we do every week is just explaining what this does and doesn't mean. Yeah. And, you know, I think our gut is, well, of course we should get to vote either for or against him. And in many ways, I'd rather see him de- defeated at the ballot box. But when it comes to the law, it isn't about what would be good policy. It's about what the law requires. And if that's the language of the Constitution, then we have to live with it, which, by the way, was created through a democratic process, right? Two thirds of Congress, three quarters of the states ratified, just like the ERA, right, Jill? Oh. You got to me that time. <laughs> All right, we'll talk, we'll, we'll talk about that another time. So Jill, some of the things we see in this brief are some of the same arguments we've heard before. January 14th was not an insurrection, or even if it was an insurrection, Trump did not engage in it. Uh, the 14th Amendment does not apply to the president. Um, but there was one argument that was new to me, at least, and that is that the language of the 14th Amendment says that one who engages in insurrection is prohibited only from holding office, not from running for office or even being elected to office. So it's premature to exclude him. What do you make of that argument? I mean, do we have to wait till January of 2025 and say, oh, sorry, you got, you were elected, but you can't be seated? I don't think we have to. I don't think we should. I think it would do far more damage to the attitude of the people who support him to allow it to go forward and then they are deprived of having voted for someone who cannot hold office. It is true. This is not a spurious argument. It's not ridiculous. The language does say you can't hold office. Yeah. But you have to keep in mind, the states are in control of who can be on the ballot. In some states, it's up to the parties to assign who can be on the primary ballot. But on other states... They have qualifications, just like the federal government. They have to make sure that the candidates on their ballot are qualified to hold the office. So in that case, where states require qualifications, that would be legitimate for a state to say, if you are not eligible to hold the office, then you cannot be qualified to be on the ballot and to have your name um, as a candidate. So I think for those states, it's clear that the difference is without distinction. But there are other states that don't have that. But it would be absurd for a court to find that you can't hold office, you couldn't serve as president, but you could be on the ballot. That would be wrong. So I think that they should decide it and decide it now based on who would be qualified to hold the office. It's sort of like the distinction between, well, the president doesn't take an oath to support the Constitution. He or she someday, I hope, only takes an oath to preserve and protect and defend the Constitution. 
Well, that's a difference without distinction. If you are taking an oath mm -hmm. to do all those things, that is to support the Constitution. So that's my take on the semantics of this language. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I hadn't thought about that because, you know, there's also that language from uh, Judge Gorsuch, not now justice, but when he was right. a judge, that actually was quoted in a case as saying that it is the rights of the states to choose who's on their ballot. So that's a, that's a good point. I think um, that, that those words might come back to haunt him. Um, Joyce, here's the one that might be the strongest argument, I think, that Trump makes in his uh, petition. He argues that this is a political question and that only Congress should decide eligibility, not the courts under the Constitution. Um, first, can you explain the political question doctrine, what that is, and then tell us whether you think it applies here? Yeah, um, you know, it's really an interesting question, Barb, because the political questions doctrine is pretty nebulous. It's often in the eye of the beholder. It goes back to Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution, which establishes the judiciary and sets forth its purpose. And then in the first big decision made by the Supreme Court following the creation of the Constitution, the court creates the notion of judicial review. And it says that the court should decide legal questions, but that it, it sort of starts this political questions language. It says that there are political questions. They need to be carved out, that they're not the court's responsibility. They're better left to other branches of government. So then the question becomes, well, what's a political question and what isn't? And the term is, it's a legal term of art, but on its face, it gives really very little indication of what sorts of cases um, the doctrine bars federal courts from deciding. So over time, starting in a case called Baker versus Carr, the courts have set out a number of factors that can be used to decide what's a political question. A good example that our listeners are probably familiar with is that the courts will not decide whether a map that's drawn for voting districts is an illegal, unconstitutional political gerrymander. The court says, you know, that's a political question. We're going to stay out of that. We'll decide that something is an unconstitutional racial gerrymander and disallow it on that basis. But we won't look at political gerrymanders. That's a political question. Um, and that's to say that the decision can be very amorphous. But I think even with that lack of specificity in the law, Trump's reliance here is, is misplaced. This is a pure question of interpreting the law and what the 14th Amendment Section 3 means. It doesn't really seem to fit the criteria for a political question. Um, those criteria seem to revolve around whether a question is one that's uniquely better to be decided in the political sphere because there's not a definitive answer that the court can give. And of course, the Supreme Court is empowered with the ability to decide, well, what does this language in the Constitution mean? And that's what's at stake here with interpreting the 14th Amendment. So I know some people are more bullish on this argument for Trump than I am, but I don't really think it's a very good process prospect for him with this one caveat. I think you're dead on the money, Barb, when you say the Supreme Court may be hesitant to remove Trump from the ballot, that there's a mm -hmm. real lean towards letting the voters make the decision. Maybe the court will decide this is an easy off-ramp for them because they can just say, well, it's a political question, and then they're done. Yeah, that's what a judge in Michigan did. Good judge who um, got this question, and his decision was the same, that this is a political question only for Congress to decide. It is not for the court's. So there's at least one reasonable mind that agrees with this argument. And it would be a convenient out, I think, for the Supreme Court, which is why it, it might be appealing. Um, Kim, there's another argument that Trump does not raise, but one I've heard you address, and it's another one that, that I think the Supreme Court could use as an off-ramp if they wanted to, to avoid removing Trump from the ballot. And that's this idea that it's premature to decide this question before the primary elections and it needs to be decided only for the general election. Can you explain that argument? Yeah, it's not so much an argument, but I think is a factual reality that could weigh in on what the court decides to do and when, right? Because the problem is in the primary stage, every state has different rules for their primary. You know, sometimes uh, it is up to election officials to decide who is on a ballot based on, you know, whether they get enough signatures or such. 
In other states, it's the state parties who decide who was on the primary ballot for federal elections. And it's really out of the state. If they really, you know, if they wanted to, technically, they could put a 15-year-old, even though that person would not be eligible to be president. So when you have all of those differences, trying to decide an issue that would be, that would cover all the primary rules could be difficult. And it seems that the the real way to take that on is to address the 14th Amendment question directly, right? Because that would apply to everyone. And it would, but it would also really, um, it would definitely apply in the general election. So what the Supreme Court could do, I, this is just an idea. They could stay everything so that Donald Trump is on the ballot so that, you know, everything stays the status quo. So in the event of a ruling in his favor, he hasn't been damaged. Take up the 14th Amendment question and just schedule arguments and briefings irrespective of the primary calendar. People can still vote. People do their thing. But once they decide the 14th Amendment question, we'll know where we are. Is Donald Trump able to run or not? So it just seems to me that that avoids all the problems of trying to do this on a state-by-state yeah. basis. Except in states that don't have ranked choice voting, people are throwing yeah. away their vote yes. if yes. he gets kicked off. And so that's not a fair outcome, I don't think. It's not perfect. I mean, there is, I mean, is there a way that nobody is hurt other than stopping the election and waiting till this all plays out? There's no perfect way. But the Supreme Court has tools at its disposal um, to say, you know, we're gonna we're gonna decide this and try to do with what is in within their uh, power to do on the emergency docket to keep as much of the status quo as possible while that plays out. I wonder if we might not see one or more of the Republican candidates, you know, either alone or maybe even jointly, if that were the scenario, if they might try to intervene and make the sort of ranked choice voting argument saying, hey, our rights are being violated if he stays on the ballot while he's not eligible. And, you know, the problem with elections is you want them to be clean and simple. You don't want messy. So hopefully Supreme Court, I know all the justices are big fans of hashtag sisters-in-law, hopefully they will take our expert (laughs) guidance and do this as quickly and as cleanly as possible so Americans have certainty heading into the election. Oh, wouldn't, you, wouldn't it be great if they listened to our podcast? I'd be surprised. But wouldn't it be great if like <laughs> Elena Kagan listens to our podcast? You know, I, I fangirl over Elena Kagan. She's the coolest. Very cool. Um, well, all right, Jill, I want to ask you about a piece written by former Attorney General William Barr. He wrote a piece um, uh, making some arguments that, uh, you know, Trump should stay on the ballot And one of them is that Donald Trump is entitled to fact-finding. You know, he talks about it as due process, not necessarily the kind of due process you would get in a criminal case, but at least fact-finding that he engaged in insurrection, where he gets to present evidence, he gets to cross-examine witnesses. You know, at the time of the Civil War, it was easy to determine who had engaged in insurrection just by looking at whether they had participated in the Confederate Army. You know, that was easy. You were a colonel in the army, you were an insurrectionist, you know, you're subject to this thing. And, you know, this situation is not quite so black and white. It's not quite so automatic. Um, what do you make of that argument that that uh, there's not been adequate fact-finding? So his article is actually pretty interesting, and I recommend reading it. But after you start to parse each of the arguments in it, it's not very compelling. And in terms of saying it's easy to determine if someone fought in the Civil War, well, were they conscripted or did they volunteer? If they were conscripted, did they actually engage in insurrection? I don't know. Um, Would they have had to flee the jurisdiction to avoid service? And I don't think it's any harder to watch television and determine what Donald Trump's role was and whether there was an insurrection based on the evidence you saw with your own eyes or the compelling case put together by the January 6th committee than it was to determine if someone had engaged in being a Confederate soldier. So I'm not persuaded by his argument, but there are some good parts in it, some interesting things. Um, And certainly everyone is entitled to, to due process before being deprived of being on, uh, being convicted, for example. That would certainly require due process. But losing your freedom is different than losing a privilege of running for office. And I think part of his argument was that Section 5 um, 
influences how we interpret Section 3 of the 14th Amendment because it makes it not self-enforcing. It says that Congress has the power to enforce this um, provision. Well, it really is aimed at enforcing all of the provisions, the due process provisions, the equal protection, to saying states can't deprive people of federal rights. And I don't think it applies clearly in this case and I don't think you need to have a court decision. So as you go through each of his arguments in this, I don't think that it, it will stand up and that it's still the right thing for the Supreme Court to look at the 14th Amendment, the disqualification, to allow states that say you must be qualified to hold office, to be on the ballot, to run for office, and to say he engaged in a conduct that bars him from office. And it is his conduct, not his words, but his conduct before and after the January 6th um, insurrection that I think bar him from office. So I think there's a lot in, you know, you'd have to spend a whole lot of time going through each of the points in this very lengthy uh, opinion piece. But no, I'm not impressed by um, his fact-finding argument. And remember, there was a trial in um one in Colorado, and there was some fact-finding in Maine. And so it wasn't done just based on nothing. There is a procedure now for appealing to higher courts, and that's where we're at. And the courts, uh, Colorado Supreme Court said, you know, we're doing some um, fact-finding, not we're basing it on the facts found by the trial court. We're looking at the law. The, uh, there will be now a case in court based on the Secretary of State of Maine's fact-finding and legal conclusions. So I think that's enough due process to uh, allow for states to determine who can be on their primary ballot. Yeah, Joyce, I want to ask you about just one other question that um, Barr raises in that piece, and that is this argument that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is not self-executing. That means that, you know, Congress would actually have to create some enforcement mechanism to explain how all of this works and to, uh, you know, have it be actually utilized. And, you know, it, that, that seems strange because other provisions of the Constitution don't have to have some sort of enforcement mechanism. But there is Section 5 uh, of the 14th Amendment. It's got, it's got this, Section 3 is the one we're talking about. But then there's the Section 5, which says Congress may enact legislation to enforce the 14th Amendment. Well, why would that be there um, if if it weren't necessary to legislate? And he actually cites an old case called Griffin uh, to support this interpretation. What do you make of this argument? Yeah, I think this is a fascinating argument, and it goes to the earlier question you asked me about whether the political questions doctrine was a good um, way for Trump to prevail in this case. This sort of meaty legal question about what Congress has to do under the statute is, is right in the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. This is the sort of question in this case that clarifies that it's appropriate for the court to consider because, as you say, there are two possible interpretations here under the law, and there is good legal reasoning, frankly, on both sides. And the only authority that can determine this question with finality is the Supreme Court. It's not that they'll be doing Congress's job, the political job, it's that it's up to them to determine whether the Clause 14, Section 3 is self-executing or whether Congress really does have to go a step further out of due process concerns and other reasons. I'm not sure where I come down on this one, Barb. I've looked at it extensively. I see good arguments in both places. I think it's the Supreme Court's responsibility to tell us what the answer is. I agree with you, but I just want to say the language of, our, of the Section 5 is may pass legislation. It doesn't say they must pass legislation. Mm -hmm. And it's clear from the legislative history that it was aimed at equal rights protection and enforcing against states who might try to take away people's rights. You know, I mm -hmm. hear that, Jill, and I agree with that. And, and this is a Supreme Court where a majority believes in strict construction of the Constitution. When the language is plain, you follow it. And the problem is, I think that they could also say that that language that says Congress may 
would mean that Congress makes a deliberate choice, that they can pass legislation if they want this to be a thing. But if they don't pass legislation, then they're also making a decision. And that's the sort of statutory um, ambiguity that the court is the body charged with responsibility for deciding. And, you know, there's one other provision in there that also makes me lean toward resolving this in favor of disqualification. And that is, there's there's some language in there that says that Congress may remove the disqualification by two-thirds right. vote. Well, if they have to vote to remove it, doesn't that suggest that it's automatic as a default? So, uh, you know, wiser minds than I will have to look and parse through all these words and see where they come out. But I just think that there are just so many ways the Supreme Court can dodge this question uh, substantively that they're, they're going to use one of them to, uh, to dodge the qu- question. Well, I guess we'll find out. So there has also been a flurry of litigation between the Biden administration and the state of Texas. And a good deal of it is about the state's border and immigration policies. So first, let's talk about the lawsuit the Biden administration just filed over Texas SB4. Joyce, what does that lawsuit allege about this law? Yeah, you know, this lawsuit makes me feel like I have deja vu because I fought this precise lawsuit during the Obama administration in Alabama. This is a repeat of a legislative strategy that Arizona and Alabama tried. It's called a papers please law because it requires state law enforcement to ask for proof of citizenship and then arrest anyone who isn't here legally. Um, Of course, this imposes all kinds of burdens on law enforcement uh, and on federal law enforcement in particular. It forces them to expend their priorities on these roadside stops instead of maybe focusing on organized groups trafficking people or focusing on people with violent criminal history who, who are here without status. So it's a misallocation of federal resources, and that's the entire point here. The Supreme Court has previously determined these kind of measures are unconstitutional under the Supremacy Clause, And in essence, the lawsuit says that only the federal government has the right to determine immigration policy and that because Texas law intrudes on that, it's unconstitutional. So the the theory here that the state is traveling under is federal government's not doing enough. We don't like what the federal government is doing here, so we are going to step up and do it ourselves. And DOJ argues that the state of Texas can't run its own immigration system. Yeah. So what about that, Jill? I mean, I remember learning back in law school that, you know, immigration is a federal issue. So is this going to be a slam dunk for the Biden administration, do you think? Well, because of the Supreme Court, nothing is ever a slam dunk these days. But not only did you learn it in law school, I actually practiced immigration law as part of Jenner and Black. Wait, what? So do we know this? There you go. One more. An immigration I don't think attorney so. ballerina. I don't know that we Come did on, know this. This is all new. <laughs> I got to reevaluate. Ah, uh, yes. I used to now. twirl over to the immigration <laughs> office to help my clients. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. Joyce has already said it. I mean, we have a supremacy clause for a reason. We have a a regulation of commerce clause, you know, interstate commerce and foreign relations all belong to the federal government. So if you look at our constitution, it makes it clear that immigration practices have to be done at the federal level. And it, it it's in every way, shape and form, whether you can get into the country, whether you can be removed from the country, whether you can be sent back to another country, which is foreign affairs, all of those things are clearly for the federal government. And the court has in the past recognized that that is true. And so I really think that this case will end up going nowhere um, for the state of Texas. And I'm wearing a Texas pin because we have two Texas topics (laughs) today. So I'm wearing a sheriff's pin from Texas. Very, very nice. Well, have you been a sheriff too? Uh, (laughs) I, well, I actually, hold on, I actually have a real badge. But of course you do. <laughs> that was for Solicitor General, not not for Sheriff. I've never been a Sheriff. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, maybe that'll be the next chapter. <laughs> She's the Sheriff. Um, so, 
In addition to all the things that Jill says we have, we also have governors in states like Texas that are stunting, right, that are doing things in order to try to gin up the issue of immigration. So I think that's why uh, in this case, even though we have this case law that seems pretty clear that Texas can't do this, that they're doing it anyway. But that's not the only Lone Star battle, Barb. Last week, the Biden administration asked the Supreme Court busy Supreme Court these days, asked the Supreme Court to chime in over federal officials' effort to cut the razor wire Texas placed across parts of the Rio Grande. What does the administration want? And what do you think the likelihood of the administration, uh, of the court taking this Yeah, up? so you may remember that in the summer, the state of Texas, Governor Abbott decided in a show of force against the invading immigrants that he would put razor wire into the waters around Texas to keep immigrants out. And, you know, again, Kim, this strikes me as, you know, posturing for voters, despite the fact that he has taken an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States, um, he has um, violated the same thing. You know, this is federal domain. Immigration is a federal uh, area that um, is foreclosed to state administration, and yet they put up all this razor wire and the border patrol agents say it is causing a lot of problems for them because people are getting injured, it is preventing border patrol agents from doing their jobs of enforcing the border. And so they've been cutting it. And so um, the state of Texas filed a lawsuit against um, the United States of America. Um, and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said that until this issue is resolved, the um, the Border Patrol must stop cutting the razor wire. And so Elizabeth Prelogger, whose name I now know how to pronounce, thanks to Kim, it's like a logger and someone who came before, a pre-logger. <laughs> Solicitor General um, Prelogger has asked the court to step in to immediately lift this injunction and say, look, Border Patrol needs to be allowed to do what they're going to do. We can work out the legal issues here long-term and figure out what the law is. But in the meantime, um, this injunction is um, clearly illegal. It is not permitting Border Patrol to do their job and it needs to be lifted right away. Yeah. So, I mean, we've been talking about immigration being within the federal authority, but how, how do you think this case in particular might play out? Because it touches on things that are a little more complicated, right? I mean, you have, it goes across, um, you, you have leaders in states across ideological lines complaining that the federal government isn't doing enough on immigration, that either their resources are being stressed or even private nonprofits that are trying to help people, they're they are worried about um, the border crossing. So, you know, is, is this something that could actually be a real battle that the Supreme Court has to sort out? Maybe states do have some say in immigration policy if it is affecting them in the state, not, not with, let's just notwithstanding, I just want to say notwithstanding the fact that putting razor wire across the Rio Grande is a human rights violation. It's horrific, but there are uh, bigger legal issues at play as well. What, what do you guys think? I don't think it's the Supreme Court's job to make policy. They've said that repeatedly and they need to stay out of this fight. The real problem here is that Congress has abdicated its responsibility to legislate. DOJ's argument, and the precedent here is, that the federal government owns the responsibility for immigration. A and it makes a lot of sense, because when you think about it, if we had 50 states with 50 different laws, then foreign countries would have to navigate this whole range of different policies where their citizens were concerned in different states. Immigration would also become a barrier to trade and to economic development in the United States. If you had to navigate these 50 different state regimes, it is unworkable to let each state run its own immigration plan. And so the burden belongs very squarely on the Congress, which has simply been incapable of that task. Hopefully this next term will be different. Yeah. And, you know, I would say politically immigration is a mess. And that's because so many in Congress have refused to take on this issue seriously. And that's true of Republicans and Democrats. I think everybody's just so scared of taking a strong stand on this. But just because it's such a political hot potato doesn't mean the legal issues are complicated. I mean, they may be a little convoluted when you're starting to talk about the Supremacy Clause, the 11th Amendment. But I think at its core, this really is about uh, whose responsibility is it to 
govern the border. And it is a federal responsibility, a uniquely federal responsibility. And so I think at the end of the day, I can't imagine the Supreme Court will allow states to have their way when it comes to things like this. I definitely agree with Barb on this. And it is definitely a political um, hot potato in terms of both parties needing to get some agreement on how to govern our immigration process. It is a mess, but it has to be a federal decision because that is clearly within the federal government. And we've, you know, we already had the decision about the um, buoys that were put in the middle of the river and which ran afoul of navigable waters. Now you have barbed wire on private land where people haven't given permission for it and where it is endangering both our border patrol agents and the immigrants trying to get here. But there has to be a federal policy on this. It cannot be um, that it is state by state. Even though in another segment we're going to talk about, states do have powers to individually make decisions about how elections are run. That's not true when it comes to foreign policy or immigration. Dobbs has led to a lot of things, including federal guidance based on a 38-year-old law that requires hospitals with emergency departments that receive Medicare reimbursement to provide medical screening and, if an emergency medical condition exists, necessary stabilizing treatment or an appropriate transfer, irrespective of a person's ability to pay. The provisions of the law, which is called the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, EMTALA, apply to all individuals, not just Medicare beneficiaries. The federal guidance that uh, the Biden administration issued required that when a pregnant patient came to an ER experiencing an emergency medical condition as defined within EMTALA, an abortion was the necessary stabilizing treatment. That was what the physician had to provide. Further, the guidance said that when a state law prohibits abortion and draws exceptions for the life or health of the mother more narrowly than EMTALA, then federal law was the one that governed. It preempted state law. So then Texas decided it was going to take action. It passed an anti-reproductive rights um, law that has led to some very interesting legislation and uh, litigation, rather. Uh, Joyce, I want to talk to you about the trial court in that litigation ruled against the Biden administration's guidance and stayed its impact. This week, the Fifth Circuit, generally considered to be the most conservative federal appellate court, agreed with that trial court. Talk about what the ruling was, what its rationale was, and what the danger of the stay and the, the law in Texas is. Yeah, so look, the Fifth Circuit ruled that federal law can't be used to form Texas doctors to perform abortions. I think that that's the bottom line impact. Um, EMTALA is about the care emergency rooms are required to give, and it requires ERs to provide stabilizing care regardless of a patient's ability to pay. It was adopted to prevent patient dumping, and that's something that the Fifth Circuit acknowledged. But nonetheless, they said that after Dobbs, when HHS issued guidance on EMTALA and reminded hospitals that physicians had to provide abortions as necessary to stabilize patients who were in emergency rooms, that they went beyond their authority and that they violated state law. The Fifth Circuit said that HHS's interpretation of EMTALA was flawed, and so they stayed any enforcement of that guidance. And to put what that stay means into context, we should consider the case of Brittany Watts, an Ohio woman who was 21 weeks pregnant when her water broke. Her doctor told her that the fetus was not viable and that she needed to have an abortion or she would become septic or have a placental rupture and she would die. But based on the laws that were in effect at the time, the emergency room she went to in Warren, Ohio, declined to treat her, and she ultimately lost the pregnancy at home. 
um, she is now being considered for prosecution for abuse of a corpse, which is just stunningly um, anomalous in a situation where a woman suffers a tragic loss. It happened because she did not receive stabilizing care in the emergency room of the hospital where she went. That's what the stakes are in a case like this. Yeah, the the law is so vague that there's going to always be controversy about how severe the risk to the mother has to be before emergency care is allowed. You know, what constitutes an emergency? Do you have to be on death's door? Can you just be septic? And that's what happened in that case, Joyce. And it, it really is something that many hospitals now have appointed legal teams so that doctors can get advice before they give medical treatment, which seems really bad. So, Barb, while it's clear uh, the Fifth Circuit said Mtala can't be used to force an unwilling doctor to perform an abortion, even if there's an emergency, but do you think Mtala can protect a willing doctor in a state with draconian laws like Texas's if they perform an emergency abortion because they really fear for the health of the mother, which Mtala would protect? Or does it have to be the life of the mother, which is what Texas says, or a, a bodily function that will be lost? Because think about the Cox case, where she was denied a, an abortion in Texas, even though she was going to lose all her reproductive functions as a result of carrying the pregnancy without an abortion. Yeah, before this decision, I would have thought that a doctor would be in safe territory under EMTALA. They could, you know, uh, cite to an emergency and use that um, as uh, a justification for their conduct in performing an abortion. But now, after this ruling, I think, the, you know, the idea that state law governs um, and allows a much narrower exception only to save the life of the mother, that I think what we're going to see as a practical matter is doctors having a chilling effect, being fearful that, well, um, I think their life is at stake, but I'm not sure, and so I better not. Or, um, you know, some of the things they raised, the, 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 the state raised in its, uh, its challenge was, well, what about a mental health emergency? That may not be life-threatening, but could create some emergency. I've had conversations with friends who are doctors um, in uh, obstetrics, and what they say is there are all kinds of things that come up where it would be their best medical judgment to advise a patient to abort, um, but it's probably not life-threatening, or at least it's not certainly life-threatening. You know, what if someone has um, breast cancer? probably treatable if they get um, immediate care with you know, chemotherapy, radiation treatment, and other kinds of things. But those are things you can't do if you're pregnant. And so their best medical advice would be, end the pregnancy, let's take care of the breast cancer, and then you know we hope you can have um, a healthy pregnancy down the road. If it's just to save the life of the mother, that's not an option. And so that's where it gets so complicated to have these rules. And as we saw in the Cox case, um, putting it up for judges to make these decisions who are so ill-equipped to make decisions about what is in the best interest of a woman's health, uh, a pregnant person's health needs. And so I think the biggest concern about this case to me is the chilling effect it will have on doctors who just aren't sure and don't want to risk going to prison uh, and risk their medical license for per performing abortion that turns out in retrospect where they got the guess wrong. Yeah. I mean, it's really scary. And it it's something that may give a doctor an affirmative defense to a criminal action. But what doctor yep. wants to have the criminal yep. action in which he has to assert a defense? So from a different perspective, Kim, we've talked about administrative agencies like the FDA and the uh, conservative courts and Republicans trying to eviscerate them. Here, the three-judge Fifth Circuit panel, in addition to saying the guidance exceeded the statutory authority of uh, the um, the HHS. It also faulted the Biden administration's process of issuing its emergency care guidance, saying that federal officials did not go through the proper rulemaking process. Um, so what do you think of that? Is this really something that Mtala allowed? Is this something that you think there's a legitimate concern about whether the process was filed or would the court have done this no matter what? And is this just part yeah. of trying to undo administrative agencies? 
Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure we we know for sure, but there's certainly there are certainly some things that are true all at the same time. One is that there is an assault on administrative agencies and it seems to be a prime place like you couple that with the overturning of Dobbs and that is precisely what is explaining uh, you know, a, a lot of challenges that are going on right now challenging the FDA's authority and HHS's authority it's like hitting you know two birds with one stone so to speak so there is an animosity toward federal agencies that conservatives have you also have conservative judges like donald trump filled the entire uh, federal judiciary with conservative judges so you have those who are more likely to i in my opinion in my opinion be outcome driven on the issue of abortion so maybe there is something in play but at the same time when it comes to not following agency procedure that has been a reason for a lot of cases and rulings against parties of both administrations. One that comes to mind during the Trump administration is that is precisely why Trump's effort to try to put an immigration question on the U.S. census form failed. It's because uh, Secretary, uh, what's his name, Ross at the time, didn't follow administration policy. And it was an easy way for the Supreme Court to say, although they seem leaning on ruling that the president had every right to put that question on it if he wanted, Trump ended up losing because they didn't follow the right procedure. So that's a real thing. That's something that agencies actually have to do. So I think this is a mix of potentially legit legal um Questions that need to be answered mixed with certainly the purpose of these law, these challenges in, in the first place um, or the purpose of, of passing this law in the first place was political, right? It was a, an effort thinking that they had good conservative judges that would uphold it. And, and do you think that there's a way that the guidance could be rewritten and gone through a different policy so that you could eliminate the court's objections? They could start from scratch, but I think that there'd still be another challenge. But yes, they could they could try to do this again, start from scratch and follow all the proper proceedings. But in the meantime, you have a lot of women who are in danger. It was the same, not the same as the census, but the timing was the same as the census. You had to get these forms printed and get that get it out so that, you know, reapportionment could happen. Um, it wasn't enough time to do that. So running out the clock is a legal strategy too. I think all of these things are happening at the same time. Sadly, it does point to the danger to all women in states with these kinds of laws. And um, hopefully it will be resolved in a way that allows safe healthcare for all these women. And at least for now, um, I think it applies only in Texas. So that's at least a good thing for us to end the show on in, in terms of this. Well, now it's time for us to answer listener questions. You know how much we love getting your questions. Seriously, we do. And I hope that you'll feel like if you've got a question, you can send it to us. You know, we'll do our best to answer them during the show. And the ones we can't get to, we often answer on social media. So now that you can use the at on threads, do that there. Or use the traditional at to us on Twitter and we'll get to your questions. But for starters this week, Barb, there's an interesting question for you from Patty. I'm gonna toss it your way for starters. She asks, as granular info is revealed about the coup plot, what will happen with or to the unindicted co-conspirators? Oh, Patty, this is such a good question. Um, as you know, obviously, in the indictment that Jack Smith filed in the federal election interference case in Washington, D.C., only Donald Trump is named as a defendant. Clearly an effort to streamline this case and get it done quickly. But uh, he also names six unindicted co-conspirators, and it doesn't take much to figure out who they are. I mean, one of them is Giuliani, one of them is Sidney Powell, one of them is Jeffrey Clark, one's John Eastman. So we know who these people are. And so what will happen to them? Here's my guess. Um, after they will either cooperate in Donald Trump's trial in exchange for not being charged or leniency if and when they are charged, that would mean that they would enter guilty pleas uh, to whatever they end up being charged with. If they do not cooperate, then I think it seems quite likely, especially if Donald Trump is convicted, that they could then be charged later. So the statute of limitations on all of this is five years, 
which will pass in January of 2026. No, did I do the math right? Yeah. You did? did? Math right. 2029 to 20. All right. Yes. Uh, yes. Didn't even use any notes. No notes, folks. Um, so he still <laughs> has some time, even after the Trump case is done to charge them. So I don't think Jack Smith's going to forget about them. He's either going to use them in the Trump case or he's going to come after them down the road. And that's the risk that they face and the leverage that Jack Smith has over them uh, to work out a deal and testify in the Trump case. Hey, Jill, we have a question from Matthew in Manhattan. Matthew asks, what's going to happen to Donald Trump as a result of the civil frauds case in New York? We see that the attorney general in New York has just asked for a lot of damages. Will that really stick? Well, uh, it depends on how you view the evidence. And I think the evidence came in pretty strongly. The original ask from the attorney general was for $250 million in damages, which was basically return of the profits that were unfairly made by overestimating values and underestimating for insurance purposes, um, uh, for tax purposes, rather. Now they are asking for $370 million, which is quite a big increase. But don't forget, there's also another part to this, which is they're asking to basically put Donald Trump and his uh, organization and his family out of business in New York, to bar them from doing business in New York. So in addition to disgorgement of unfair profits, they would no longer be able to sell real estate and condominiums, et cetera, in New York. So I think that there's a, a chance that based on Judge Engeron's um, findings during the trial, that he will go for the amount of money being requested. And I it's, it's going to be a dramatic, um, a dramatic outcome, I would say. Mm. I bet we'll have more to say about that one next week after the hearing takes place in front of Judge Angoran. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Kim, our last question comes from Judy in Brunswick, Maine, one of my favorite places anywhere. I bet by the time she listens to the podcast, Judy will be sitting in all the snow that's predicted to land in New England over the weekend, so it's appropriate for us to take her question. She asks, how do the Supremes communicate with each other? Do they sit in their lonely offices transmitting thoughts by email or text? When I was a medical practitioner, we held case conferences. Did these justices meet about cases? I, I want to know the answer, too. They uh, shoot spitballs at each other. No, um, they, the Supreme Court justices do conference, actually. That's exactly what they call it. Um, periodically, whether they, are, they get together to decide which cases to add to their dockets or which cases to refuse to add to the docket or, or after an oral argument when they deliberate, those are all... They do so in literally a conference room where it's just them. There's no court reporter. There's no any, anything else. And they go around and they vote and they deliberate over these cases. So they do that together. You know, it, it's yes, they each have their chambers, their little offices that they that operate sort of like indiv nine little individual law firms in a way. But they also... You know, they socialize from time to time. And I'm told up to at least some point, Sotomayor and Gorsuch were uh, good friends, that friendships go across ideological lines. If you go to the Supreme Court, at least it used to be so. If you went to the Supreme Court, you went into the cafeteria, you might see justices in there. The justices are very, uh, you know, proud of their contributions. I believe Kavanaugh got pizza and uh, to be served in the cafeteria, Kagan got a uh, soft serve ice cream. I believe, you know, they're around the building. They, they are collegial, but the way that they communicate besides uh, leaked memos, no, just kidding, just kidding. And um, besides, you know, going after each other in opinions and dissents is they do actually speak to each other on and off the job. One of my favorite factoids about the court is that the most junior justice is the, has demand the door. So when they're in their little conference room, if someone knocks, so I get with this Katanji Brown Jackson. Yeah, she's, she's, Jackson, like, all right, I yeah. got, I got it, guys. I get the door. I know, I know, it's me again. I got it. <laughs> well, Kagan jokes too that she was on that for a long time. Like after she was, <laughs> after she was confirmed, it was like ten years before there was somebody yeah, else pray, praying for a newbie to get out. <laughs> like, I've been answering this door for a long time. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Weinbanks, Kimberly Atkins Store, Barb McQuaid, and me, Joyce Vance. 
Remember, you can send in your questions for next week by email to sistersinlawatpoliticon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. And please show some love to our sponsors, Happy Viking, One Skin, HelloFresh, and Athena Club. They all make great products and you can find their links in the show notes. Please support them because they support us. Please follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and give us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. See you next week with a new episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law. You guys remember um, when someone wrote a column like name checking me and other people about changing our last names? Because you know, it was so unfeminine. And so one of the other people that they that the writer cited was Jennifer Lopez. And after that, I was like, Jennifer Lopez and I are the same. It says so in the Washington <laughs> Post. <laughs> we are the same. <laughs>